is Fuse and Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hi, and welcome to Fuse and Focus. I'm Rebecca, and today I'm joined by Peter. Hello. Jess. Hiya. Alex. Hello. Jessica. Hello. And Serafina. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about global climate change policies, strikes in India, a lockdown orgy in Brussels, the backlash against Dame Nancy Rothwell, Brexit negotiations, and a story on Netflix as The Crown. We're kicking off first with some breaking news in Britain. The UK is administering its first doses of the Pfizer and BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine this week, and an expected 800,000 jabs will be available during the first rollout. Vaccinations could continue until at least next spring, and the chief executive of the NHS, Sir Simon Stevens, has warned people to stay careful in the meantime. The UK is one of the first countries to roll out mass vaccinations, and it could be a decisive turning point in the battle against coronavirus. Margaret Keenan, who is turning 91 next week, was the first recipient of the vaccine and called it the best early birthday present. Moving on to our first report, 2020 has, been, has seen average global temperature reach 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, with 1.5 degrees being the critical threshold of global temperature increase set by the Paris Agreement. Atmospheric CO2 levels have reached record highs, with the past decade being the hottest on record. Countless climate records have been smashed this year, with 2020 bringing in increasing temperatures, devastating wildfires, marine heat waves, deadly storms, extensive ice loss, and many more climate-related disasters. The highest polluting nations by CO2 emission have, re- have been recorded as China, the US, India, Russia, and Japan. Amidst such global chaos, Fuse FM is taking a look at how global political leaders are taking a stance against excessive fossil fuel consumption. We will be taking a look at what future political efforts in tackling climate change will look like, and how climate change will affect our world from the UK to Australia. Are we living in a twilight era of coal? The combustible sedimentary rock is at the heart of the fossil fuel economy. Yet around the world, the mood is shifting. Xi Jinping of China has adopted a target to cut China's net carbon emissions to zero by 2060. Though China is this year's largest polluter, it leads the world in clean technologies, which could bring about a greener future. With China's step up in its carbon neutral aims, the nation has joined the EU, the UK, and dozens of other nations and adopting mid-century climate targets, as called by the Paris Agreement. Denmark has vowed this month to end new oil and gas exploration in the North Sea, a decision which is part of the Danish plan to phase out fossil fuel extraction by 2050. On Thursday night, the Danish government voted in favour of plans to cancel the country's North Sea oil and gas licensing 80 years after it began exploring its hydrocarbon reserves. Denmark is the EU's biggest oil producer, and its green policy turn will resonate around the world. In conversation with The Guardian, Helene Hegel from Greenpeace Denmark described the parliamentary vote as a watershed moment that will allow the country to assert itself as a green frontrunner and inspire other countries to end our dependence on climate-wrecking fossil fuels. Denmark's 55 existing oil and gas extraction platforms will be allowed to continue extracting fossil fuels, yet this watershed decision will end the exploration of new reserves in an attempt to phase out Denmark's fossil fuel production. Under Joe Biden, America is set to rejoin the Paris Agreement, which it adopted five years ago. Biden's presidency could help reduce heating by 0.1 Celsius if plans are fulfilled, 
saying experts say experts who believe Biden could bring Paris climate goals within striking distance. Biden's policy target is to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050 and plans for a $1.7 trillion investment in a green recovery from the COVID crisis, which would reduce US emissions in the next 30 years by about 75 gigatons of carbon. In a UK Gov press release, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson pledges to commit 350 million pounds to fuel green recovery, aim to cut emissions in heavy industry and, uh, and drive economic recovery from coronavirus. Funds will also be aimed at construction, space and transport in attempts to meet PM's goals of leading the most ambitious environmental programme world worldwide, explains gov.uk. The multi-million pound investment package will build on the Prime Minister's work throughout his first year in office to drive forward progress on the UK's target to reach net zero by 2050. Similarly, the UK has unveiled plans to begin, farming, uh, begin sustainable farming from 2021. In light of such facts, climate scientists now believe their predictions about the rate of the global temperature increase have been far too conservative and stronger and more decisive action is needed to reduce dangerous greenhouse gas emissions. So my question to the group is, do you think that 2050 net carbon goals are too little too late attempts by global governments in tackling the global climate crisis? I think that with coronavirus this year and since the pandemic has come to light, there have been a lot of parallels drawn between the reaction that governments had to coronavirus and um, kind of the impact of climate change as well. Um, so I think that the way that the government jumped to save um, a lot of the economic impacts of coronavirus is mainly due to the short-term impact that it had. Whereas with climate change, because it's long-term and it's less visible to the public, um, I do think it's, it, the government have just sort of dropped the ball on it and it will have devastating impacts. Um, so yeah, I would say it is too little too late. What could be interesting also, if the government does leave it till the last minute, will we have the same sort of disruptions that we've had with this pandemic? Will life completely reverse because people are no longer allowed to use cars because of the need to reverse carbon emissions so suddenly. So I, I think it it's encouraging to see that countries like Denmark are starting to roll back and realise um, the damaging effects of fossil fuels to the environment, but it just needs to be amplified across Europe and across the world. I definitely think that there should be, yeah, like the onus of responsibility should be on those five nations that I uh, mentioned at the start of the report in terms of uh, China, the US, India, Japan, and Russia being um, the global, um, the highest global carbon um, uh, emission producers. So I think more should be done in kind of directing international cooperation like we have in the Paris Agreement. And uh, I do see it as a positive, and this leads me to my next question in terms of um, Biden's presidency and returning to the Paris uh, Agreement. Uh, what do you think that holds for the future? And do you think that uh, Biden's presidency could put America back at the helm of attempting to stabilise and um, centralise glo global political forces in tackling climate-related issues? I don't think it'll be a fictal solution, but I think it will go quite far I mean considering we've just come from a president who didn't really believe in climate change I think it's probably a positive thing that, that Biden wants to go back into the Paris Agreement 
um, just because I think if you have these cross-country international agreements, you're more likely to kind of hold the countries within that responsible to those goals and make a, a joint concerted effort to actually make a difference. Whereas if you don't have that kind of overarching authority of that, that agreement, it's it's a lot more arbitrary based on which country you're from. So I think just the fact that he wants to go back into that shows that he's got some kind of commitment to, uh, you know, improving America's contributions to stopping climate change, um, which I think along with a lot of other aspects of his presidency will make a nice change from the one that we are leaving. And uh, and finally, on um, the topic of the death of coal, um, as we started the report, do you think that government should be doing any more regarding climate related issues rather than just pledging to be carbon neutral by, say, 2050, as the trend is going uh, at the moment around nations? I think we've covered this on the show before when we were talking about fast fashion, but I think the main thing governments need to do is hold uh, multinational corporations accountable because that's like that's the main issue. Uh, it's coming down to these, you know, billion dollar enterprises who are, you know, accountable for, you know, a large proportion of carbon emissions, at, which are detrimental to uh, the climate and to the environment, and they need to be strictly regulated. Yeah, I think it's just come out as news today that Pepsi, Coca-Cola and Nestle are one of the highest uh, people to like have plastic waste from their companies. So I think, yeah, you need to hold the large corporations accountable for how much they're doing to damage the environment. Do you think that they need to, they'll have to do that by putting some kind of financial incentive in place though? Because at the moment, those those corporations, the reason they don't go green is because it's not profitable for them or it's not as profitable for them. So I think something needs to be done in terms of governments to kind of force them um, into making more green decisions because otherwise they they just will keep using up resources as long as they can make profit. Um, I don't know if that's a particularly cynical view, but I just don't think they will they will make any changes if they don't benefit benefit from it. Yeah, I do think to do with like Pepsi, Coca Cola, and whoever else it was. Sorry, um, I do think that scientific innovation is needed to encourage them as well as well as new laws. Because that's often where the steps come, you know, to encourage these big corporations to stop wasting so much and stop being so bad for the environment. They need concrete evidence and concrete ideas um, to allow them to move on um, and stop being so damaging to the world. Yeah, I think going off those two points, uh, it's important also, um, especially what Serafina was saying in terms of governments putting financial incentives to encourage big business. Also, I think in terms of just economic practice and within the discipline of uh, economics in terms of management and consultancy for these firms, I think we need to move towards a green economy direction of governing the principles of, of economics in terms of putting the onus on big business of thinking how their business models uh, are outdated by modern standards and how they need to reach these uh, efforts by governments that, uh, that are making pledges like 2050 of cutting carbon emissions. I think we also need to remember that it's easy to remove ourselves from the narrative and assume that climate change catastrophes are only a hazard in other countries, but the UK will inevitably suffer too uh, temperatures will rise and severe weather events will increase, such as flooding, droughts, heat waves, severe gales and snowfall. Um, and increased local flooding and flash floods may damage homes, 
droughts could lead to water shortages, wildlife and agriculture will be affected, and sea levels could rise by 40 centimeters by the end of the century, which will also contribute to flooding and to further coastal erosion. So this isn't just something that's happening far away from us. Like we need to remember that this will affect all of us in the coming years. And that leads really nicely onto my story about the fact that climate change could lead to no more snowy winters in the UK. Um, and these drastic effects of climate change can be seen, you know, in the next couple of years when we're still wanting to enjoy Christmas, and especially when it is nearly Christmas now, and we are just seeing a lot of rain. Um, but yeah, the effects of the climate change policy for us will be an end to a white Christmas and obviously our best excuse for snow day. And the Met Office forecasts that by the 2040s, most of southern England could no longer see sub-zero days. And by the 2060s, only high ground and northern Scotland are still likely to experience such cold days. And this is due to what I've been talking about, these high emissions rate across the country contributing to global warming. And if this continues to be as high as it is, then the average coldest day in the UK would remain above zero Celsius across most of the country throughout the winter. And, but if drastic change is taken, and we are like looking at promoting the dangers of climate change and looking at adopting more eco-friendly methods of daily life, then we could see some variation in the temperatures. So for example, some years may see colder days than the average. So we have things like Asda making stores with sustainable places where you can just fill up rather than buying new packaging. Little things like that could make a big impact and kind of affect what could happen in the future. Um, but uh, scientists have said that the overarching picture is warmer, wetter winters and hotter, drier summers. But within that, you get the shift towards extreme events. So if the rain is heavy now, it'll be heavier. If it's hot now, it'll be hotter and drier. And that's when you can get like the dangers, what Rekka was saying about the floodings. So because the terrain will be dry, there's more risk of flooding. And I think it's kind of interesting to talk about flooding now, because I think Merseyside have just announced that like there's cars kind of submerged in water right now. Um, so we are already seeing these effects of flooding. I'm from the Lake District. I've seen a lot of flooding up here before. I think that's kind of the start of this kind of image of climate change. And we've had a really hot summer as well. So Despite sounding appealing, they've pointed that we take uh, like all the risks we've already mentioned, but that's not just in the UK. We already saw this year that Australia suffered extreme bushfires, and reports have also said they've been seeing fires just recently, yesterday, where firefighters are battling to keep a large bushfire, which has come within 700 metres of a small town on the Australian holiday island. So even afar, we're looking at these massive, massive climate disasters. And so in the UK, as Peter mentioned, politicians like Boris Johnson are announcing new ambitious targets to tackle the dangers. So the UK is by 68% by the end of the decade. And he hopes this will set an example to other nations. But what I found quite interesting is like little things we could do. And one of them set out by the Financial Times was if we sent one less thank you email per day, we could actually cut um, 16,433 tonnes of carbon a year, which is equivalent to tens of thousands of flights to Europe. So. Yeah, my question kind of is, who, whose job is it to be carbon neutral? Because people like Google have already said they're carbon neutral and they're paying subsidies for their projects like YouTube, which aren't. But is it their job to set this example and kind of lead the way? Or is it our job to not send another email or kind of not buy plastic bottles? Where does the blame fall for this climate disaster? I think this harks back to last week's debate, um, consumer slash uh, corporate debate between um, where we put, like, you, you say blame. I think blame is the wrong word when we're trying to address it to the consumers because it's hard to get people to listen to you if you're trying to blame them uh, and put kind of the fault in their, at their feet. 
uh, I definitely think as consumers, um, we should be doing more. Uh, but like Rebecca said um, today and how she mentioned it back to last week's show, I do definitely think that emphasis should be on big business and government to lead the way, uh, but also to educate consumers in kind of fulfilling better practices. So whether that's uh, more kind of government campaigns and addressing um, better consumer, more con more sustainable, greener consumer practices. So like saying advertisements on TV or, or in public. Um, I definitely think it's a blend of the two, but the emphasis needs to be on big business and on governments to lead by example, in my opinion, because then consumer positive practices will follow. And do you think by this kind of, I was thinking about the threat of this no snow at Christmas, that's quite a, it's a British history thing. You, all, you know, it's, you have songs about a white Christmas, you expect snow to be there at Christmas. We've not had it properly for a couple of years, really. And do you think kind of the press, looking at this aspect of we're not going to have snow will affect how we treat like climate change and maybe make us believe it a bit more? Uh, yeah, I definitely think so, because it definitely makes Christmases in the future sound a lot more grim than they are now. I mean, I don't like getting flooded on Christmas Day. and I don't think anybody does. Uh, but I think that's one of the problems about the way that the media approaches it. It's often put across almost too morbidly, like we've got no chance. And I think maybe it should be put across that we do have a chance, but we do need to change it now. Because I think it causes a lot of people to almost be too scared to bother to try and sort it out. I, I was just wondering what you guys thought on that as well. Yeah, definitely. It seems like a hopeless situation, I think. Um, the way I see it, it's like, well, you know, me having a, a longer shower, that's not really going to make that much difference. Um, if you've got, I think, there's, there's a statistic going around a, a couple of months ago on Twitter, so this might not even be correct, but I think it was like the top 70% of all greenhouse emissions come from the top, the same top three companies or something in the world, um, which is kind of insane. I've probably got the numbers wrong, but it's the same kind of idea. Um, so it just kind of makes you think, well, me, this tiny, tiny consumer that's one out of 8 billion people isn't going to make much difference. But the stat that you just said, Jess, about the emails, that shocked me. Um, I didn't realise that sending emails had that much of a carbon footprint. So I guess if we're told more shocking statistics like that and it's framed in a way that, you know, isn't as morbid as you're saying and, it, um, and is more of a positive thing, like, oh, if you just did this, you could make a positive difference. Um, and, you know, kind of showing us ways that we can make a, a larger difference, that would be good. Um, that's not to ignore the fact that it most of the population is coming from, from large companies. But, yeah, I think it just needs to be framed in a less kind of catastrophic way yeah just going off that point I definitely would agree that um there are a lot of different ways that the government can just even just educate and also raise awareness about um certain aspects of consumerism an example that comes to mind is the uh, plastic bag charge that was introduced which was just 5p at the time which is obviously so minuscule to most people but I think it was so effective that it reduced um, plastic bag consumption by up to 85% or over. And it just highlights that a lot of the consumers, obviously in the UK, maybe they're just so unaware about things that are just so sort of inherent in the way that they um, behave to do with the environment that they don't even realise the impact that it has. So I think it, it is just to do with educating and just raising awareness. 
it's 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 simple things as well like it'd be, it'd be simple for government uh, advertisements to kind of reach out about educating on these on these minuscule with these things that seem minuscule like saying uh bring bring a bag for life with you when you go shopping have a shorter shower be more conscious about the way you recycle and that you do it properly even even stuff like uh what Jess said with the with the emails like just like just having it at the back of your head that you can be conscious about little things you can do that don't inconvenience your day to a large extent but do bring positive rewards for tackling the global climate crisis i think that is a positive step forward but but like i said like education needs to come from the top down it can't be as easily stimulated just amongst consumers themselves i do think climate change is inherently political uh so it'll be interesting to see what implications brexit for example will have for climate change policies because the uk will no longer need to heed eu advice on sustainable practices so there are concerns that a lack of external pressure and accountability from the eu will allow the government to weaken climate regulations and I think just the fact that Brexit could have these implications goes to show how powerful policymaking is in regards to climate change. I, d I don't think that Brexit will have a negative effect on UK climate policies, though, like we've seen uh, with my report about the, uh, the pledges that Boris is making towards um, following the, the Green Deal that we're seeing as like a global trend. Uh, I think it goes beyond the EU holding its member states accountable for green policy. This is a global initiative and a global movement. And I think we, we see it in uh, multilateral deals like the Paris uh, conference, which the UK is a member of. So I wouldn't worry too much about drawing correlations between Brexit and uh, climate change kind of policy reduction in the UK. Just going back to the general population's impact. Is it even possible for us to live a zero carbon lifestyle in the internet age if one email causes that much of an impact? Like we're currently on Zoom now. I'm just wondering what sort of impact that would have, you know, all the bandwidth that we're using. Is it even possible that we're ever going to make enough progress in this new age? I think it's interesting that obviously this year we have all been using Zoom and things like that, but also in terms of coronavirus and personal protection equipment, you know, think of all the masks, all the plastic, you know, surgical bibs, the gloves, everything that's had to be made for protection hasn't had a focus on being eco-conscious, but in had a focus on protecting lives. And I think we will kind of suffer because of that, because we have had all this waste, you know, I see on the street so many masks that have just been thrown on the floor that wouldn't have been there without the pandemic, wouldn't have had this extra thing to worry about. And then you see, you know, they're in the water, animals are being damaged, you know, there's a lot of things to consider, but we have just been trying to fight a pandemic. And I wonder what this will impact in the future, having this kind of extra load of being on the internet all the time. Um, and then using obviously a lot more um, plastic in uh, hospitals. In time, though, I think we've dr dramatically in, like, decreased our personal like, amounts. For example, you know, people don't travel to work as much. People are working from home. You know, you're not having to heat up offices. And there's just, I think, a general decrease in the amount of energy people have been using. Because obviously, if you, if, you, if you haven't got people in an office and no one's traveling there, that's a considerable amount of carbon that you're not using up there. Um, and I think there was all those stories at the beginning of the pandemic of, you know, nature returning to the way it was supposed to be, um, which is, you know, there were some slightly eco-fascist takes going on at the, at the time, but they, you know, they are right. There's, there's been considerably less cars on the road. Um, 
and they're saying that you know this Christmas is going to be a lot quieter so normally there's a lot of carbon emissions going on at Christmas because everyone's visiting each other if we now can't do that there's going to be a lot less cars on the road and um, so I think that you can kind of balance the two and I think after the pandemic I don't personally think that there's going to be this huge mass exodus back to kind of working in offices and you know seeing each other I think it's going to be a lot more gradual and people are going to be a lot more wary so I think we probably will retain some of the more positive environmental impacts of the pandemic in the future so I don't think it's all bad basically it does uh, quickly say I'm not going to be listening to driving home for Christmas this year with no emissions and no car journeys our next story is by Alex on the strikes in India yeah so in the past couple of weeks there's been rising tensions between India's farmers and the national government uh, at present, there are roadblocks into New Delhi that have been in place uh, by the farmers' unions for a couple of weeks now. And today, on the 8th of December, there is another mass farmers' strike taking place across the entire country. The last strike on the 26th of November led to more than 250 million people across India go on strike against the government's new controversial laws, uh, which aim to privatise the sale of food produced by farmers. Even though the government has insisted that the new laws will help modernise India's agriculture by skipping the third party, farmers argue that selling straight to supermarkets rather than the state will lead to big corporations exploiting them and subsequently cause the price of farm produce to fall. Uh, the strike and mass protest couldn't have come at a worse time for India as well, with it having a, a COVID case count of over 8 million, making it number two in the world for current cases. Um, and it also brings up the question of whether this could kick off the decrease of popular approval rating in Prime Minister Modi's uh, government, uh, which you'd think would surely be need to be high in order for India to successfully vaccine 1.35 billion people. Um, so opening up a question for you guys, do you think that these farmer strikes will affect uh, Prime Minister Modi's future in India? I think um, it's very much a question that depends on your political outlooks. Um, so this is very much a move uh, from the Indian government uh, of moving the economy towards free market forces rather than uh, kind of holding um, farmers accountable to national nationalised standards and stuff like that. So it's part of this idea that by unleashing free market forces upon uh, the Indian agricultural sector, it'll uh, contribute to kind of rejuvenation, better competition, so therefore better growth. If that happens, obviously uh, people will get richer, but then the argument that is made by the farmers is at whose expense and will it basically create like a farmer elite in terms of uh, some farmers, yes, they will get richer and they will monopolize areas, agricultural areas, but it'll be at the detriment of your average farmer. So it very much depends on how it pans out and how uh, kind of the government facilitates um, this unleashing of free market forces with future redistribution of wealth, depending on if the distribution of wealth is unequal. So it's, it's, it's hard to say right now, but in terms of the political ramifications, I think um, we, when we were speaking about the story yesterday, is this the largest uh, protest recorded? Yeah, so this, this is actually the largest, largest strike ever in human history. Um, yeah. And because it's 250 million people, that puts it about 5% of India's entire population. 
which in terms of the history of Marxism and revolutions, uh, they've got more than enough people to cause a revolution. So I think that would definitely be interesting. Um, just moving on to the next question. So with the free market being prioritised in India, you think this is one of Modi's next moves to bring him closer to making India a world superpower with um, increasing connections between China and America? It definitely seems like it's meant as a step towards the development of India. Obviously, it's not uh, currently a superpower, but it has the potential to be with a huge population and, you know, that means that you've got a huge potential to, to have a lot of profit being made in the country. Um, and it, it does seem like in the kind of trajectory of the development of other countries, you have had this move towards capitalism and capitalistic modes of, of the economy and its management. So yes, I think it, it does, it sounds like it's trying to uh, emulate the development of other countries' um, economies and yeah, it sounds like he's, it's a it's a move towards making India like a, a, a more relevant player on the, the kind of in the big the big leagues of countries in general, um, which I think will be interesting because you know as as we said with, with such a huge population it, it has the potential to be a massively powerful nation. I think just going going off that point, what is interesting within Indian politics and just some preliminary research that I was doing around this. Um, Modi is building a model that uh, has incorporated some of the most expensive government programs ever rolled out in uh, Indian history. And it's been designed to trigger mass uh, entrepreneurship by introducing reforms such as major tax cuts. So this is all part of kind of free market, laissez-faire, uh, liberal economic program. And I think I agree with Serafina's point in the fact that it's designed to open up India towards the global economy rather than looking inwards. And um, there, there will be there will be losses for it, and we and, we, and we've seen this in why so many uh, farmers have taken up to protest because they feel like while India is attempting to look outwards and while people profit from that, the common the common person, the common farmer, they it will be to their detriment, and they like um, this binary that's been created between kind of uh, socialist and capitalist modes of production and um, wealth distribution that is kind of just being eroded to purely capitalist forms. So it is an interesting development. And uh, like I said, it's, it's one of these things that it's hard to say now because it's, 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 it's a development that is like going, going on now. And the kind of the economic ramifications will only know 10, 20 years down the line. It does also make you wonder whether this is India's move to create the American dream, you know, of uh, the whole entrepreneurship development in India. Um, what's interesting as well is that Modi's According to the Financial Times, uh, Modi's approval rating was about 74% in July. Now, um, some news sources have suggested today that it's fallen by about 15%. Our next story takes place in Brussels. Last week, a Hungarian member of the European Parliament was at the centre of a scandal that led to his resignation. He was among several men violating COVID-19 restrictions by attending a gay sex party. The attendees were caught by Belgian police and MEP Jozef Sayer was found trying to flee the 25-person orgy. An ecstasy pill was found in his backpack, but he has denied ownership of it, uh, and he allegedly tried to claim diplomatic immunity when confronted by the police. He has since not only resigned from the European Parliament, but has also left his right-wing National Conservative Political Party, Fidesz, 
uh, a party that only last month proposed a constitutional amendment which would ban adoption by same-sex couples. Sire's actions have been dubbed hypocritical because of his anti-LGBTQ platform. Regarding the blatant violation of COVID measures, Belgium is currently imposing very strict regulations, including a face mask mandate everywhere in public, a 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew, and a ban on inter-household mixing. When political figures flout these rules, they undermine their validity, as we saw when Dominic Cummings traveled to Durham during the first lockdown. So I think it's ironic that Sire tried to claim diplomatic immunity because, if anything, political figures should be held to a higher standard of conforming to government regulations. Do people agree or disagree um, about whether they should be held to a higher standard? I think completely, um, like all all people should be should, should be should be held to um, abiding by the restrictions, and especially politicians because they're meant to lead by example. I think there's two very deeply ironic elements of this story. One, that um, this MEP was part of Orbán's. Uh, like we, we, we can describe it as fascist and it is openly described as fascist party, which grounds a lot of its legitimacy on um, like just fueling hate within within Hungary. And one of those things is uh, homophobia and uh, condemnation of LGBT rights running on such a platform. And then this man going to an orgy uh, to a gay orgy just kind of highlights that. And this this isn't a standalone event where we've got homophobes. Um, who are like have this rhetoric in their public life and then privately are actually whether 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 they whether he's gay bisexual like it, we can't we can't judge his sexuality but that he openly um, endorses this hate, hate this hateful platform it's not the first example of a person doing that and then their private life being completely different and I think calling out such hypocrisies is an important thing to do as well in terms of fostering um, future anti-homophobic sentiments. Yeah, I think one of the big reasons the story hit the headlines is because of the irony and because both Hungary and Poland have been very divisive within the EU because of their stance on human rights, particularly LGBT rights. Yeah, not even the right wing can practice what they preach. Um, it's, it's, it's just kind of a crazy story. Um, I, I don't have much to say on it other than, wow, uh, it sounds like a school kid getting caught with weed in his backpack with the whole ecstasy pill thing uh, and it's a little bit funny if a bit concerning for uh, Hungary's government. I think if it wasn't for the pandemic I'd feel almost sorry for him because um, there's obviously something uh, a bit worrying about the fact that he uh, is, is standing for a party that doesn't agree with his own personal sexuality um, but I just think given that it is in the middle of a pandemic it was quite irresponsible to you know be sharing bodily fluids with so many people um i think you can kind of draw comparisons with our very own Rita aura um in, in this country who i think went to egypt i believe to do a private concert didn't come uh, didn't quarantine when she got back and then had a birthday party with like 30 people um not quite as intimate i'm assuming as this mep's uh experiences but i think um, just if you are a public figure, no matter whether that's a celebrity or an MEP, you, I think, have a little bit more responsibility to uh, show, to, to practice what you preach and to to set an example, just because you kind of signed up for that at that point, um, you know, you're going to be seen by a lot of people. And so it's especially important that you do the right thing, because as you know, as we were saying with Dominic Cummings, people were saying, well, if the guy that's basically pulling all the strings behind the government's back 
isn't obeying his own rules, then why why should any of us? You know, what if he's allowed to break the rules he's made? Then like there's no point us performing to them. And so it's a similar thing with this MEP. Like if he's spouting all this, uh, I don't want to say nonsense, but you know, kind of homophobic rhetoric, um, and then going back and not practicing that in his private life, then what platform of legitimacy does he have? Um, and again, same with the coronavirus rules as well. I just think it's a it's a very messy situation, but as you said, Alex, a little bit humorous as well, um, in perhaps a, a more dark way. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with Serafina on that. I think um, politicians have a lot more responsibility than the average citizen, because one of the main aspects of running a country is leading by example, and citizens do look up to politicians, especially if they support the party, as almost role models. Um, and of course, if you see someone that you look up to flouting the rules, then it, it changes how you view that norm in your head. Um, and just with respect to this story as well, when I, the article I read on it earlier, which I found really interesting, said that the prior to all this came out, the Hungarian government had actually said that they weren't taking part in Eurovision this year purely because they deemed it, and this is a quote, too gay. Um, so just kind of highlights how conservative and traditional they are, yet um, close senior members of their own party um, obviously had different personal views. That's shocking. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think about this, like what, what's it gonna do for the LGBTQ scene? there is it going to help them because it's made it more like there's a there's a story now where it's been opened up someone in in their government has in a sense come out they've kind of there's this story about it I think it's whether it will do good for them or make it more of a closeted issue and kind of as it's surrounded by this pandemic and how that was the, the bad part of this story the fact that it was happening when you were supposed to be in lockdown whether that will have a negative impact or whether because now this has been opened up to talk about, it will have a positive impact. But yeah, I think the thing about the Eurovision is a bit crazy. Um, yeah, I think the same as it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a weird story, especially in the current times. Um, I hope possibly it will open up the narrative for more talk around the homophobia stigma there and allow more kind of voices to come out to kind of get the rights for these, this community. But whether that will happen, I'm unsure. I do almost wonder if it's, you know, one of the only examples of somebody who's from the LGBT plus community in that government. And then it's somebody who's not representing the community very well at all. Like what that's going to do for the general image of LGBT people in Hungary. Like I personally, I don't, I can't see it. If they're, if they're describing Eurovision as too gay, I don't really think that they're going to see this as a positive thing for the, the community. So I do worry about that. And I think it is a massive shame that, um, you know, he did have to kind of hide that that whole part of of his life I guess from from public uh, view even though he didn't particularly do it responsibly but yeah in response oh, no, to, to you Serafina asking whether this is the only example of someone in the Hungarian government uh being at the heart of a scandal like this um there was actually an incident I think um in 2015 a member of the Alliance of Free Democrats who's an open lesbian stated that Sire and another male politician were gay and the other uh, politician brought a defamation lawsuit against this politician and he won in the lower court but lost on appeal and Yozef Sire the one who's at the heart of this scandal did not react to the statement so this isn't the first incident 
I, I was just going to say um, with what Jess and Serafina were talking about, whether it's damaging or positive and uh, like th th this effective coming out, although it's more of a jumping out uh, of a window than a coming out. Um, what, what I was going to say is that th this man, uh, Shire, he is known to be uh, a, a vehement anti-gay activist. Uh, he was a founding member of the Hungarian um, party, party, which we said has fascist undertones and runs on a strong homophobic streak. So this definitely isn't good for the LGBT community in Hungary in terms of the fact that it might lead to more jibes, more negative press around the community in Hungary with um, basically now this, this, this MEP, this politician being sidelined from the party and basically being um, ashamed, being... Um, be, be, well, I, I guess being dragged through Hungarian media as well. So I, I do think that there are negative aspects of this which will reverberate on the community in Hungary. I do also think, adding a bit of nonsense to this conversation, he does also look like Rasputin with glasses. I know he's not the same nationality, but perhaps he is trying to repeat history with, you know, a few orgies here and there. <laughs> Yeah, I think about what people were saying earlier, it would obviously be nice if this story could destigmatize LGBT rights and encourage people uh, to come out lest they become they uh, come into criticism or, or scrutiny, but I don't think that will be the case. Um, like I said, he was pressured into leaving the Fidesz party and Orban, uh, yeah, spoke out against this as well. Yeah, just to add to that, I think the party have actually not even acknowledged um, that it was a gay orgy because the kind of press releases that they did spoke about him stepping down because he broke lockdown rules by going to a house party. So it's like they're not even willing to kind of endorse the idea. Um, so yeah, I don't think it will have very good impact. Our next story is brought to us by Jessica on Brexit negotiations. Yeah, so this... This week, the EU and the UK have been wrestling to strike a deal on their future relationship after the transition period ends, which will be on the 1st of January 2021 in just a few weeks. No deal has been agreed yet. And when and when it is, the deal will have to be ratified by both sides. This involves a vote in the UK Parliament, but more significantly, the EU Parliament, which involves ratification by 26 countries. If a deal is reached, we can move forward on the agreed basis. However, if no deal is reached before the end of the year, we'll automatically be subject to tariffs under the W under the World Trade Organization. This is unfavorable for both sides as it's as it risks disrupting trade and also creates uncertainty in other areas, for example, aviation and data security. So the negotiations have come down to three key issues. The first one that is currently in the spotlight is fisheries. When the UK leaves the EU, we'll become an independent coastal, coastal state, which means we'll have control over who can and can't fish in our waters. This is a big change to being under the EU rules, which placed us under the common fishery policy, which meant that fishing fleets of every country involved in the EU had full access to each other's waters. The change is significant for the UK because it will go from holding less than half of British quotas to having full, full control. And it's this reason that Brexit had a significant amount of support from the fishing industry. They were promised a boost and a renaissance of the left behind industry. So it's 
overall basically become a symbol of regaining sovereignty that was unfairly taken away from us back in the 70s. However, being an island, the UK owns an abundant uh, amount of waters, and this represents a loss to the EU fishing communities and fishermen that have traditionally fished in EU waters, who are still pushing for ongoing access to UK coastal waters. France especially is keen to retain the status quo, with Emmanuel Macron threatening to veto any deal that does not grant this. So it sounds like the UK holds all the cards, but to complicate things further, if Britain does not compromise, the EU can revoke full access to their fish markets. This represents a significant disadvantage to the UK as fish exports will no longer be profitable in the EU. And the majority of fish native to UK waters are actually more popular overseas um, and are more widely sold in overseas markets. This means the UK fishing industry would greatly suffer if it didn't have full access. It's also important to remember that the fish, the fishing industry in the UK is actually worth less than 0.1% of the economy, which is a really minuscule amount. The second um, key issue that's being negotiated this week is regarding fair competition, or as it's been called, let the level playing field. Level playing field is a trade policy term that means a common set of rules and standards preventing business in one country gaining a competitive advantage over those operating in other countries. It ensures fair and open competition and is a common feature of trade agreements. This is because it ensures that businesses on one side don't have an unfair advantage over competitors through lower operational costs. The EU wants a level playing field in return for zero tariff, zero quota deals that Boris Johnson is insisting on. This is because they believe if, if UK markets are going to have full access to the EU single market, as the UK are aiming for, then they must not have an unfair advantage in doing so. The EU want the UK to stick to EU rules on things like workers' rights, environmental regulations, and especially state aid. The final issue is governance. Um, at the moment, there's no clear guidance on how disputes will be resolved if one side breaches the terms of the other. This is particularly because Britain does not want the European Court of Justice to have any role in resolving disputes. They're arguing that dispute resolution mechanisms must respect the autonomy of the EU and the UK legal systems. Those are the three main issues relating to trade. However, there is another ongoing problem in relation to the Internal Market Bill, which was actually covered a few weeks ago on the show, but I'll just quickly summarise it now. It initially contained clauses that broke the Northern Ireland Protocol and therefore broke international law, which consequently meant that Ireland may require a hard border in the case of a no-deal Brexit. The EU had confirmed that they would not sign any deal unless the UK removed certain clauses that breach international law. And the House of Lords actually went on to remove clauses, these clauses that broke the law. However, as of last night, the House of Commons has reinstated those clauses, um, but they have said that if they can reach a deal, they will not enact the bill. So overall, Britain is basically pushing to be granted a bespoke trade agreement they want full access to the single market, but without the strict obligations and oversight that other non-EU countries incur with similar deals. When 
this is all combined with some of the comments we saw last week from the education secretary that basically stated Britain was better than all other countries and also some of the public outrage we saw last week towards the EU post-Brexit travel rules that essentially ended freedom of movement for Britons around the EU similarly to what uh, freedom of to what will happen to freedom of movement for EU citizens in the UK it does beg the question does Britain suffer from an extreme case of exceptionalism I would say yes um this I, I've always been a Remainer and this just angers me because the whole point of leaving the EU was to kind of move away from all this and now we are actually leaving the EU it just seems like we want all the benefits of being in the EU but just without the label um, and it's really frustrating because overall the the net gain that we get from being in the EU is just so much more um, than what we have to put into it which is what everyone was really angry about you know the spending billions of pounds um, to the EU that they kind of plastered all over the buses and stuff um, it just sounds like you know they, they want complete full access to these markets in the EU but they don't want the EU to then have complete free access to our waters which it just it's I think it just shows a, an arrogance there like it's why why are we so special why why have you voted for well I'm not I'm not going to blame you know 52 percent of the population but but why why are we thinking that we can then go back to the EU and kind of take as much as we want and not give anything it really really frustrates me um I think you know we've we've voted for Brexit we're, we're, we're Brexiting so we need to take some concessions because at the end of the day we're the ones making this massive massive problem in the EU like if it wasn't for Brexit think about how simple European politics would be at the moment you know um it, we're the ones making the problem and so I think we just need to take some concessions and shut up basically I'm fed up having this debate like just <laughs> sorry I'm just getting really annoyed but the fact that Brexit has been going on now for almost like five years and it's still not done and I still don't I don't believe it's going to be finished by the end of this year I, I can't believe that like it's taken them 11 months to even get started on this so I just want it to be over <laughs> I feel like that's what everybody wants though like you've had um like Boris Johnson calling it oven ready and all these strange terms that have been used that haven't actually come into fruition. We're still in this massive problem. We still have all these dilemmas that need to be solved. It's still headline news, every, you know, all, all week. Like, yeah, same opinion as Serafina, just get it done and let's move on. But they need to take some compromise because as you said, they're making this massive issue and kind of acting a bit childish and just want get, trying to get what they want, no compromise. But that's not how the world works. You need to have negotiations. They can't see themselves as this stoic British that can get whatever they want anymore. They need to like make agreements, talk, negotiate. To play devil's advocate, though, it works both ways. It's not just the British that are being difficult in the trade negotiations. Um, Jessica mentioned the point of Macron uh, threatening to veto the deal if um, the trade deal doesn't kind of resolve the fisheries issue. Um, the Irish have stirred up a lot of problems uh, about the uh, island Northern Ireland border in terms of the fact that they still want uh, the border to be a loose border and to be part of the single market. Um, so so the, the, the thing is with the Brexit negotiations, it, it has a lot of national interests in terms of multilateral trading interests. And each nation at the end of the day is looking after its own trading interest, whether that be the Irish, the French, the British or other EU nations. So I think kind of like poking fingers and like saying, 
because there are a lot of things that the UK has done uh, badly that could be done better, but I don't think it's kind of an issue that can be resolved by kind of just poking fingers and playing blame games. I think when it comes to trade deals, um, like if, if you just boil it down to pure economics, uh, an effective trade deal can be made and it can be resolved without kind of the politics that is behind it. And I think Jessica touched on that as well with the three points that you highlighted. And I think the overarching theme for me is the sovereignty situation. And it's a symbolic factor, which kind of this rhetoric of let's take back control of tightening immigration of what sovereignty represents. And it's manifested even in the symbolism of this fisheries as like literally a visual representation of sovereignty. And I think that side of Brexit negotiations is what is what is holding back any successful trade deal to being had. And the blame isn't just on Britain because there are Irish, there are French, there are other nations' interests that are holding the process and grinding it to a halt. Yeah, I, I agree with you to an extent, but I do think that a lot of the problems are the fact that England almost sees itself as equal to the to 26 countries which i don't i don't know how a country can kind of feel that they are so important that they are on the same level as 26 different economies and that their economy should and they have that negotiating power um and um when speaking to older generations there's kind of a generational divide in the education that they received compared to what we, we received because when older generations were growing up, they were sort of showed a map and they could see how much of the world Britain owned. And that was all because we were so altruistic and we were doing favors and going to these countries and sorting out their economies and developing them. Um, so to grow up in that kind of, situation I think inevitably gives you this sense of exceptionalism and sense of kind of nationalism where as a country despite being such a small island you're so influential and are are just automatically worth the world. I was just going to say that as mentioned the the current points of contention in the negotiations are fishing rights competition rules and the governance of a trade deal and the fact that both Boris Johnson and uh, European Commission President von der Leyen said that no agreement is feasible if these issues are not resolved just goes to show how high stakes the talks are and how even after years it's difficult to come to a consensus because there will be trade-offs for both the UK and the EU and neither are willing to make concessions. So I think I speak on behalf of everyone when I say people are experiencing Brexit fatigue alongside pandemic fatigue. And what people were saying earlier about like British exceptionalism, remember the term island mentality being thrown around a lot uh, during the first few years of uh, Brexit. And I think it's true that it's becoming very insular and protectionist, which is a shame. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a hangover from the kind of colonial legacy that we've had uh, in England. I think people still are of the mindset that Britain is this huge power and, you know, we can, we're like a massive player in international politics and economics when we just aren't really anymore we're a tiny little nation we've lost all of our um you know our colonial uh possessions don't like the word but possessions um and you know personally i think that's rightfully so um but i think we still have this idea that we're still like one of the greatest nations in the world and we're really really important and i think the fact that we think that we can compete with these 26 economies um is just a hangover from that and we need to 
basically just realise that we're just not that important anymore. We are we are just as equal as Ireland, as France, you know, as all these other countries. Um, and we don't have the rights to, to kind of take more than we really deserve, as we kind of did during the 18th centuries and all, you know, back then, because it's just not it's just not the way it is anymore. I agree with that. And um, as you describe it as kind of like a hangover from this this legacy of imperialism and um, Britain's position in the world. And I think uh, that the legacy that we're seeing unraveling now is this lost loss of identity that's being felt amongst uh, especially older generations of British population. And it kind of births these ideas of British exceptionalism that try to combat this loss of identity and this feeling of uh, inferiority and being weak in comparison to the past and uh, rhetoric like I said in terms of the sovereignty situation of let's take back control and stuff like that it's all part of this kind of loss of identity that's being dealt with by trying to regain it by regaining the island by taking back control of the island and creating a new a new identity structured around Brexit and the post-Brexit world that this island may have and I think if we go down this uh, avenue of British exceptionalism it will be very dangerous for the country uh, not only will it be dangerous it will also end up being very embarrassing for us in terms of global politics and we've seen uh, the big shock of that for Boris's cabinet with Biden's election uh, of a man who is more willing to, where Britain once had the special relationship with the US as probably most epitomized with um, Blair uh, and his prime ministership. I think now what we're looking at is um, an end of any form of special relation and, e and Britain being a gatekeeper for American interests in the European Union where um, I think Biden will be more willing to work with the Irish, like when he said, or with the French, um, like when he said, um, when BBC asked him for a statement and he just goes, oh, I'm, I'm Irish, or he goes, BBC, I'm Irish. And I think we need to kind of like deal with this thing and countering it by British exceptionalism and kind of coming to international meetings and kind of like trying to shout to the rooftops about how great we think we are as an island nation, how much we contributed is completely the wrong way of going about it, I think. We do need to humble ourselves to an extent. Our next story is a university story brought to us by Serafina. So this week we have seen the rise of the hashtag no more Nancy um, on social media. So this has come, come about because there have been 400 signatures signed on a petition which supports holding a vote of no confidence in the senior staff. Uh, in the kind of the leadership team at the University of Manchester. And this follows the release of a report also this week, which was basically just summing up uh, what happened with the inquiry with the fence scandal in Fallowfield. Um, so the, the report basically highlighted the discrepancies between the unit's communications about the erection of the fences and when they actually started. So they started putting the fences up at 9am, but the email was only sent out to students about it at four. Um, by which time obviously everyone had already started organising a protest um, because they weren't told about it and were, I think, rightly confused. Um, so the report says the offences were meant to be a reaction to increased levels of criminal activities, including drug dealing and assault on Fallowfield campus, um, which have been uh, quite pr prominent at the moment. But this wasn't communicated to students. So students sort of felt they were being restricted in their movements because of national lockdown guidelines and because of uh, the fact that people had been having parties and things at the time. Um, but the senior leadership team didn't actually seem aware of the plans to erect fences. So the report says that 
they were told that event management style measures were going to be taken to restrict access to the Fallowfield campus for non-residents, but they weren't told that this included actually be using fences and fencing students in. So they didn't actually sign anything off or approve anything specifically about fences. So it the report didn't really blame anybody apart from the kind of security team at Fallowfield didn't mention any specific names. But obviously we were told in the report that Nancy Rothwell and the rest of the senior leadership team weren't part of the decision making process for those fences. Um, but the report did basically recommend that the uni needs to improve communications between its administration and the students. So the everybody should have been emailed the report on the 3rd of December on your university account if you wanted to read it in more detail. But the four recommendations that the report made were that student engagement needs to be made more effective. The uni needs to ensure that there is a tighter definition of delegations and project management within the professional services. They need to configure the campus management COVID-19 group to facilitate greater integration for all responses during the pandemic, facilitate challenge and enhance student engagement. Student, res student residences should also be included in that one. Uh, and then the last one is this university needs to continue to work with students and staff to address the Fallowfield site security, reinforce the need to stay safe and to address unacceptable behaviours. So that is the report that came out and then obviously this, re this week recently we've seen this petition come about which is the hashtag no more Nazi campaign. The petition calls for a vote of no confidence in Vice-Chancellor Nancy Rothwell and the rest of the senior leadership team to be held. So I'm going to again, again just uh, say a list at you but the rest of the senior leadership team is Patrick Hackett who is the Registrar Secretary and Chief Operating Officer, Simon Merriwest who is the Director of the Student Experience, April McMahon who is the Vice President for Teaching, Learning and Students and Luke Giorgio, I'm not sure if I said that right, but he's a Deputy President and Deputy Vice-Chancellor. So the Students' Union are verifying the signatures on the petition at the moment, and if everything goes well, if all those signatures are verifiable, a university-wide referendum will be taking place next semester. But it is unclear whether the university's administration will have to actually abide by the result of that referendum. Um, it's not really ever happened before, so it's not in the SU's bylaws um, as to whether you know Nancy will have to step down if, if the students say they want her to. Um, so yeah, we don't know if the senior staff will have to resign or step down if the referendum results in this vote of no confidence. Um, but the petition was set up by a coalition of protest groups, including Students Before Profit, 9K for What, and UOM Rent Strike. So we have a statement from Ben McGowan, who is part of the Red Strike uh, group, and he actually was one of the occupiers of Owens Park Tower, about his thoughts on No More Nancy. Hi, my name's Ben. I'm first year here at Manchester. I've been part of organising the Red Strike and was one of the Owens Park Tower occupiers. Uh, now we're gearing up for a referendum of no confidence in Nancy Rothwell and her management team in January. Um, I think really Nancy and her team have first and foremost always put profit above students. Any idea they care about our well-being is really a facade. Um, you know, once they've got on a 9k intuition and 6k or so in rent, they've stopped caring about us after that point. I think the past few months have been some of the very worst in the entire history of this university. It's impossible to see from any perspective how Nancy or many other senior management can continue in their jobs. Every incident they've caused has been the cause of their own gross incompetency and arrogance throughout it all. They're completely out of touch with students and staff, and I don't think they have the confidence of either students and staff anymore. You know, 
the incidents of racism on campus and Nancy's complete lack of care on TV afterwards, I think, really epitomise their entire attitude and the very worst of what they've become. You know, Nancy Rothwell and others, like Simon Merrick, West, Patrick Hackett and April McMahon, who are all around her and advise on a lot of these decisions, really have no choice but to go. For the sake of this university, because there's not a single person who can truthfully say their actions have improved the well-being of students or improved the well-being of staff or improved the status of this university. So I just wanted to ask you guys, do we think it is an issue with Nancy Rothwell herself uh, and the rest of the, the leadership team, obviously, or do we think it is an issue with the culture at this university more widely? Um, because personally, I'm not sure if getting rid of the senior staff will actually solve the problems um, or if they're just going to be used as a kind of scapegoat to say, OK, we've gotten rid of these people. We've solved the problems. Now let's move on. And then not actually much will help. Uh, what do we think? I think that the current problems with the university are more systemic and rooted in a cultural problem at the university. So an over, overall lack of transparency, communication and open dialogue and insufficient liaising between staff, students and management. So while Nancy has become a scapegoat, her dismissal wouldn't unravel the more structural issues at play. But I do agree with the sentiment that she and her management have shown a lack of compassion and commitment to staff and students, and that her removal could be a step towards long-term change. She hasn't proven herself to be invested in staff and students' best interests, and her actions have tarnished the university's reputation. She has mishandled the pandemic as a whole, but also the fencing incident and racial profiling scandal. I think staff and students deserve better representation and someone who will work to support our academic, financial and mental well-being. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, basically. Um, I think we spoke about this um, last week and we touched upon it as well uh, with the Fences story a few weeks ago. And uh, I'm still to the opinion that I think, uh, like Rebecca highlighted, well, getting rid of Nancy won't solve all of the issues that are clearly systemic within the university. And I think the principal issue is uh, cooperation and communication between the various levels of the university as an institution, between the stu uh, student body, the student union, um, the um, upper elements of um, the university, as in like the chancellor and the board that, sh uh, that she works with. I think um, basically integrating this better and communicating information amongst these various bodies is uh, the step that needs to be taken. And if uh, given all of the mistakes that the uni has faced in the last month or two, if uh, Nancy and her team can learn from it and move forward, then obviously like, well, well done, stay in, stay, uh, stay in place and carry on seeing through like this positive transition. But if we don't really see any change, then I do think that an argument can be made that whilst we shouldn't turn Nancy's uh, dismissal into a scapegoat where all the problems are gone, I do think that a dismissal may be necessary in order to facilitate change. I think it would be a good symbolic move. I mean, if you think about all the things that have happened in the last month, you know, we've had uh, the mishandling of the, the support for students who have uh, coronavirus and isolation. You know, there was supposed to be a buddy system that just completely failed and broke down. There's been people really not happy with the lack of face-to-face -face teaching, calls for rent reductions, obviously the fencing scandal which happened, um, people's uni rooms in Fallowfield flooding and creating unlivable conditions, which then led to loads of students getting coronavirus because they couldn't sit in their own rooms and isolate. Uh, the racial profiling incident and then Nancy Rothwell also misspeaking on BBC News in response to that. And then that's also after the spate of strikes we had last year, which 
again caused huge controversy within the student population. I think it just there's the fact that I've just spoken for a good 30 seconds there about all these issues that have happened just kind of shows that there is something kind of seriously wrong with with what's going on at the uni at the moment. And I think even if, you know, um, the senior leadership team is is uh, has to step down and is removed, I think it just this is an accumulation of uh just bad feeling basically by the students you know at this point I think we are just fed up and I think this is more of a an ornamental move you know to just kind of show our displeasure at, at the, the culture at the uni um rather than something that is kind of proposed as a uh, a fix all for all these issues I don't think that people mean it to be you know if we get rid of all these people all of a sudden we're going to live in this utopian university I think it's just a signal to the higher-ups that actually something's really wrong and we want massive action to happen and it needs to. Our final story is on The Crown. Yeah so uh, I think it was last week or the week before Oliver Dowden who is the culture secretary um, wrote to Netflix asking them to make clear that The Crown the TV series is fictional. The Crown is basically a series about the royal family um, and it recently released its fourth season. Oliver Dowden commented saying that the series could be so damaging to the royal family that it should be made clear at the beginning of each episode that it isn't a fact. It sparked quite a lot of controversy around the idea that the government assume people don't know the difference between a documentary and a TV series um, and also question whether a disclaimer would even make that much of a difference. So my question is just, do you think program, do you think that was a correct um, move to make on Oliver Dowden's behalf? And do you think it's programs do need to make clear if they're fact or fiction? I don't know. I saw someone on Instagram put a story on saying that they're they are very anti-monarchy. They don't like the royal family, but they really wanted to watch the the, <laughs> the crown, and they didn't know whether it would actually make them like the royal family after watching it. And they were kind of asking people's opinions, like, "Did did your view change?" Um, but I thought it was quite interesting coming from somebody who was actively posts a lot about not liking the royal family, wanting them to watch the crown, knowing it's fictional, but like having that fear of, but what if I like actually like it? I know when having like Gillian Anderson playing Margaret Thatcher, I think it is like, would that make you like Thatcher if you like the actresses? Those are these little things, but that's just what happens when you watch a TV show. Like it, you have these things, it's not real, it's not a documentary. And I think it is just a bit insulting that they think, oh, they're not gonna realize how, how dare they think of the royal family in a different light to the truth. When we can think about anyone else like that, but just because it's the royal family, it's suddenly this massive deal. Yeah, and especially I think in the times that we live where the internet is obviously so easily accessible. Um, I think most people, when they're watching something, if they are wondering if it's true or not, they'll just Google it. And a lot of the stories that the Crown touches on are kind of real events, but they've obviously just dramatized it and fictionalized it to make it more entertaining. Um, so that's what I found myself doing when I was watching it. I'd just see, they kind of highlight events and then you can do your own research into it and see what actually happened. I don't know if people necessarily would Google though. I think it, I think it occupies a weird grey area between documentary and fiction just because it is so closely linked to what actually happened. So I think, I, I do, I understand why people are saying, you know, they want to put this this fiction mark on it because traditionally the, the press team for the Royals has been incredibly kind of iron fisted and 
doesn't let any bad press sort of get out. So I think if even the idea that people would think badly about the monarchy because of this, it kind of does tie into their their overall um, method of kind of keeping the public opinion of royals quite high. Um, but saying that, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that if people think that certain things are true, because there's no way that the history of the royals has been as clean as as the press team have made it out to be. And I think if, you know, there's a little bit of a drama people think that happened behind the scenes, there's some of those bit things are going to be true or, you know, at least reminiscent of stuff that was actually happening. Um, and I think that fingers crossed most people will be, you know, have the critical thinking skills to realise that it is still a, a TV show. But at the same time, I, I can I can see why people are saying um, that it's unclear because, I mean, I don't know if they've massively moved away from the truth before. I think it's been quite true so far. I don't know if I'm, I've not seen much of it, but um, I think if they suddenly turned around and said something that was completely wrong, um, people wouldn't necessarily realise it was just wrong because so far it has been quite close to the truth. I think as well, you have the Windsors, a highly comedic show about the royal family, painting them to their utmost stereotypes, kind of having a, a really like laughing at the royal family and all like the things they do. But that's not got a disclaimer because it's so obviously um, like a fiction. Yeah, honestly, after watching the first series of The Crown, uh, I perhaps did believe too much of it without even thinking it was fiction. But then also I'm the sort of viewer that believes The Simpsons is real life. So perhaps for me, uh, Oliver Dowden may be correct um, to put in this disclaimer because it's people like me and him who uh, don't think critically enough that I mean, The Simpsons has predicted a lot of stuff. Can I just make clear? But, uh... but do you think a disclaimer would have made a massive difference if a disclaimer came on at the beginning for a few seconds or something? Would that have... Yeah, definitely. Because what, talking about other Netflix series is like Narcos. At the start of Narcos, of every episode, they said these events have been dramatised. So you're viewing them like, oh, this could be pretty close to fact, but you know that not everything's exact. And you don't take, yeah, everything is exact. So I think for me, a disclaimer would be helpful because it just allows me uh, to withdraw myself from the real world and enjoy fiction a bit more. All right, can we just circle back? Um, can you please clarify what you mean when you say, like, you're the kind of viewer who thinks The Simpsons are real life? <laughs> I just want to know what that means. Uh, so I don't know whether you're, you know of The Simpsons conspiracy like the, the directors predicting the future. And it's happened on multiple occasions. So as a keen uh, analysis of The Simpsons, uh, there are multiple events like Trump being elected, a uh, global pandemic and stuff like that. So I think it's people who take, when they watch stuff, uh, that take what they see as the real world instead of you know it being a cartoon for its own right. It's people like them, people like me, who might get a bit confused watching uh, a drama like The Crown. Yeah, I think it's probably easier to kind of distinguish between whether something fact or fiction when you've got um, yellow people <laughs> rather than The Crown, which is at least live action. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Homer Simpson does help me, but it's, it's still hard. Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. And once again, a big shout out to Johnny Hunt for producing the show. That's it for now, you're in focus. Thank you.